Well, I want to uh, give a big shout out to our Lord. Uh, as a congregation, we've been praying for little Kelvin Meredith and, and uh, that he would get a transplant, that, that there would be a donor for him. And this week we found out that God knew where the donor was and God brought the donor. So little Kelvin Meredith is going to have a bone marrow transplant, little, little Kelvin Meredith. So <clears throat> be in prayer, continue to pray that the donor will remain healthy and and uh, you know what a, what a blessing it is to the Meredith family as they sought the Lord, as they called out to the Lord and, and he helped them and uh, the Lord has, has helped us in, in, as a congregation and we praise him. Uh, I love that song, you know, that um, the God of angel armies has got us covered because he does. I hope you... I hope you know that in your life, that he goes before you, he is behind you, he's beside you all the time, he, he lives in you, and uh, God watches over you, and, and uh, that's just uh, such a powerful and a great song. Uh, well, those of you who know me well know that I'm not incre an incredibly healthy eater. In fact, I have a very limited diet. Uh, I'm happy with hamburgers, french fries, potato chips, and a blueberry pie, of course. Got to get that in. And I love chocolate bars. And in particular, Oh Henry is my favorite, just in case you want to know. This is the champion of all chocolate bars. Can I get an amen on that? All right. I, I thought that would be the case because um, there is nothing like an Oh Henry bar. But uh, I've had to give them up. And uh, it's a very sad story. But I, we won't get into that. Um, it has something to do with abusing things and making things idols in your life. And, you know, the O'Henry is an interesting, it was, it was made in 1920, it was first made in 1920 at the Williamson Candy Company in Chicago, Illinois. And um, today, if you try to find an O'Henry bar in the U.S., you're going to look far and wide because you can't find these in the U.S. And there's a good reason for that because they're named in the U.S. rally bars. And they're not the same. They're not the same. Trust me at all. They're not the same. They messed with the recipe. But anyway, um, you know, there's nothing like the, uh, the crunchy peanuts and the chewy fudge that is surrounded by a, a nice layer of caramel. And then around that peanuts and then lovely milk chocolate drizzled over the top. There is nothing, especially at 11 o'clock in the morning. Quarter to 12, it's even worse, like an O'Henry bar. And, um, and um, of course, there's a lot of um, discussion and, um, uh, out there as to how it was named. And some people thought it was named after Henry Aaron, the great baseball player, O'Henry. But, but that's not the case. In fact, if you go to the Nestle's website, you will find that they have declared that, that O'Henry was named after, uh, 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 with, uh, after a young man who used to frequent the Williamson Candy Shop. And uh, he was a very accommodating young man. And the young ladies who worked in the candy shop really took to him. And in fact, he was so accommodating, he was really a servant-hearted young man. And he would run errands for them. And they would say, oh, Henry, could you go and get me this? Oh, Henry, would you mind running down the street and buying me that? And so the owner of Williamson Company decided to name his choc a chocolate bar, oh, Henry, after this young servant-hearted Man. So there really is a, a spiritual component to an O'Henry bar. 
There really is, a, as, as a servant, it was named after a servant-hearted young man, and it seems to me this is the sanctified candy bar. But um, at any rate, God didn't make this. We made it. And that may be the reason why it's not really healthy for us to eat. And I want to um, point out this morning to you that there may be some cultural chocolate bars in our lives that may be killing us, maybe killing you or maybe killing your children. Maybe some things that you have heard or maybe some discussions you need to have. Uh, Maybe if you keep your ears open, you will hear some of the things that that I'm proposing this morning as cultural chocolate bars that are killing us. Some of them sound like this, that it's okay to do whatever you want with whomever you want, whenever you want. Maybe you've heard a woman's body, including the body that she might have inside of her, is hers to do with as she pleases. You might have heard that um, some are saying that God played a minor role in the major role of evolution. You might hear some people saying that the Bible is an ancient book of wisdom that uh, may be uh, a little out of date because things have changed, the time has changed. You may hear some people say that a person should have the right to marry whomever they want, whenever they want, and whatever gender they want. You may have heard some people say that there just may be more than one way to God. Well, there are possibly other things out there that are messages that are killing us. And there are two, it seems to me, two major cultural values that um, build a case for all of the things I've just shared for you. And the first is, the highest, these are the highest cultural values. The first is personal freedom. Everybody wants to be able to do what's right in their own eyes. And the second is personal control. Everybody wants to, to uh, believe that they are in control of their life and they will surround themselves with things that will help them to control their life, but they don't want to be dependent upon God. Those two major cultural values shape much of the messaging that is around us. And sadly, those two cultural values, which are really idolatrous, are making their way into the community of faith. Some of the messaging that I shared with you this morning are ideas that are held by people who claim to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to submit to you this morning that there's really one big idea that I want to leave with you today, and I want you to mull it over, I want you to think about it, I want you to write it down, I don't want you to forget it, I want it to be something that is very, very strategic in how you think through your life. And it is this, when you stop listening to God, you start making or buying gods who will listen to you. And soon, you're listening to them. That's the big idea I want to share with you today that I believe comes out of the study of our text in Judges 17 and Judges 18. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn there? 
When you stop listening to God, and if some of you have read these chapters, this to me would be the big idea that comes out of here. When you stop listening to God, you will start making gods who will listen to you. And soon, you're listening to them. What you want to have and believe what you, what you want uh, grows out of this idea. And if God happens to be in the way of that, we'll ditch him or remake him in the image of what we choose. Sadly, I would submit to you this morning that the modern religious man's life consists of the abundance of things he has, which is the exact opposite uh, of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things he has. But if we look around ourselves in the affluent West and in the affluent evangelical church, and if we're really honest with us, sadly, the modern religious man's life consists of the abundance of things he has. But that has to stop. That has to change. We need to be transformed from that. So today we're going to take a sneak peek into the private life of one man whose name is Micah. There's a great irony to this text because Micah means who is like Yahweh. And um, it, it's, not, it's not suggesting that Micah is like Yahweh because if you've read chapter 17 and chapter 18, you will know that Micah is probably the worst possible poster child to represent God that exists. But Micah was given a magnificent name by his parents because that name really is to remind her, every, every time the people uh, of the ancient world heard the name Micah, they were hearing, who is like Yahweh? That's how they heard it. Who is like the God of the universe? And the answer to that is, no one, nothing. But Micah's life didn't reflect that. In fact, we are Christians. Our name is Christians. And everywhere we go, we are really advertising who is like Jesus Christ. That's who we are everywhere we go. And when people look at us, and understand who we are. They are drawing a conclusion of who Jesus Christ is by how we live and by how we are. And Micah was a horrible representation of the living God as we're going to see in this particular text. So if your Bibles are open, we're looking at Judges chapter 17 and verse 18, or, and, and 18, but I'm just going to read 17. We might not have time to get to 18 this morning. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, son, my son. That's not how I would probably handle my kid. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and to cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother. 
And she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol. And they were put in Micah's house. Now, this man, Micah, had a shrine and he made an ephod and some idols or tephilim, some, some uh, um, household gods, and installed one of his sons as a priest, as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw, as they thought was right in their own eyes. It's a better translation, so I'm changing what the NIV says. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim, and Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. And then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. This is God's word, shocking as it might be. Father, we pray with um, hopefully not self-righteous hearts because I'm, I'm asking, as I have done already, to, to really deeply at this text as if it were a mirror. And to see if there be any wicked way in me. Search me, O God. Search my ways. Search my heart. Search us as a congregation. Search the people who are here this morning. Uh, look at every nook and cranny of our heart, Lord. For may it never be, God forbid that it would be, that any among us would be like Micah. But, oh, Father, as we look around and we recognize the state of the Western church, the, the evangelical church, not the liberal church, not the lost church, but, but the real church, the true church, Lord God, I, I feel like most of us are sensing that some of these things may be true of us. And, Father, there's an urgency in the hour. And I pray, Lord, as we look at this text now, that you might not that it might not be entertaining and just a simple story, but Lord God, that it might be convicting. I pray that if there is a need for us to be convicted personally, that the Holy Spirit of God will fall fresh upon us and will descend upon us. And Lord God, I pray that you'd break out with power in this congregation and that as we move through this series and are soon to leave this series, that we will leave our sin and our idols behind, O oh God, that you might be uh, that you might turn to us and bless us for your great namesake, for your great glory. Oh God, we long to see. We've been singing this morning, this morning. Show us your glory. Show us your glory. Oh, show us your glory. Oh God, if we are a hindrance to your glory, you will not show us your glory. So I pray, Father, as a congregation, that we would turn our backs on those things that displease you and turn full full face, full direction to you, O oh God. For I pray this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. I, I want to ask the question this morning, 
Um, are you in idle danger? Are you in idle danger? We already know Micah is. Micah's way far gone. But are you in idle danger? Am I in idle danger? Or I could ask or I could t entitle this section how to make an idolater. Because clearly Micah's parents had something to do with this. So as we jump in, I want to pull out um, three things from chapter 17. Three particular verses that I'm sure caught your breath. You went, oh, I can't believe I'm reading this. And those are the three verses. I think you'll agree with me. They're the ones we really need to zero in on. And the first is found in verse 2. The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it, Micah says, to his mother. That's a, a gasp. Now, um, I'm not sure, you know, we, we read these numbers, 1,100, you know, big deal, what's that? Um, there's a lot of things we have to look at here uh, at, at multiple levels. And, and oh, by the way, um, in this text this morning, I want you to help me out because um, in these two chapters, we're going to go on a commandment hunt, right? And we're going to try and discover how many commandments did this one family break. And uh, I've, I've got some props with me here to help, and, and if I miss something, you can shout it out, but, but we're going we're gonna to go on a commandment hunt as sort of a side issue, but an important one to the whole thesis of this text. But let's talk about the shekels for a second. Let's give some economy of scale to this. I, I, I can't be dogmatic about my mathematics here, um, although uh, it's possible that we could do a better search on this, but trying to give an idea of what 1,100 shekels would be worth if, in fact, it were the value of today. And since the uh, Levite was happy with 10 shekels a year, and if we supposed that, you know, a, a modest income for a priest might be, oh, let's say $40,000 a year, and, uh, and let's say because he got room and board kicked in, that we half that and say, well, the 10 shekels is equivalent to about $20,000 a year, then 1,100 shekels, by my math, is $2.2 million, all right? This lady was pretty rich, and the thief of a son stole a whopping $2.2 million. Now, here's the problem. He didn't, he wasn't concerned about the thievery until his mother cursed the thief. Now, here's the problem with that. The, um, I suspect that his mother had some inkling of who had stolen the money. Because she mentioned in his hearing, cursed is the scoundrel who stole my $2.2 million. And uh, to most of us here, there are several problems. He wasn't feeling bad about his thievery until he became afraid of the curse. And uh, he was, what we learn here is that this family was not handling the meaning of curse in the biblical way, the scriptural way. They were handling the meaning of curse in a superstitious way. And so we learn immediately that one of his key idols is superstition. 
Because you see, in the ancient uh, superstitious way, if someone cursed you, it meant that they were, they were casting an agent of doom on your life who would dog you day and night until bad things happened to you. And bad things would continue to happen to you until the curse was broken. We have people, even in the evangelical church, who believe the superstitious way of curses. That, in fact, somehow you have to get the curse broken from you uh, in a superstitious way. Uh, and you need to, be, you, you need to uh, remove, get removed from, in, from your life this agent of doom. The scriptural or biblical uh, reality of curse, which is stated in the Bible many times. God has said, I will bless those who, who, who obey and, and those who do not will be cursed. When, when God, when scripture is talking about curse, it's not talking about God is going to unleash agents of doom on us that will dog us day and night and make our lives miserable. What, what it simply means in the scriptures is that if you choose to turn your back on God and go the way that's opposite to his wisdom, then you are looking forward to destruction in your life as a result of turning from God because it's, it's, a, it's the wrong way to live. It's, a, it's the uh, a painful way to live. It's a suffering way to live. You're going to live the consequences of choosing to turn your back on God. And what it literally means there is that God has turned his back on you. And in the scriptural sense... If you, are, if you have turned away from God, the removal of the curse is quite simple. Return, repent, turn to God, and he will turn full face to you. But Micah's not concerned about God. He's not concerned about stealing. He's not concerned about his mother, is he? He's concerned about his fear of the consequences of his action. And so um, in this sordid situation, the parenting here may have in fact taught the kid the fear of getting caught, but never taught him about repentance for being wrong. This is the kind of classic parental enabler who is passive and permissive and, and teaches, uh, teaches their children that you should only be concerned about getting caught, but you should never be concerned about repenting. And what we learn here is that at least how many commandments have been broken? Help me, this is interactive. Couple? Well, let's at least go with two. The first commandment that's broken is, uh, just call me Pat Sajak without Lana White. Or Vanna White, or whatever her name is. Is it Vanna White? Vanna, I think it's Vanna White. Uh, this is the highest in technology. This is commandment eight, which is, you shall not steal. That's God's word. You shall not steal. And what else does it say in the commandments? You shall honor your father and mother. It, it's, it's sagging because of the first service. It can't take the, it, this modern technology can't, it's not rigorous enough to take the, uh, you shall not, or you shall honor your father and your mother. That's commandment number five, which we'll put right here. Two commandments toasted right here in this section. Because his highest value, Micah's highest value in life 
was material things. He was shamelessly materialistic. Money was more important than his mother. Money was more important than anything. In fact, he managed his life with his money. I want you to keep that thought because we're going to come back to that a little bit later. So here you have the idol of superstition and this horrible parenting that got the family into this situation and how to raise an entitlement generation. But there's a second, there's a second verse that really caused us to gasp, and that's verse 3. Uh, the mother, upon the return of the 1,100 shekels of silver, says this, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. Now we wish that she had have stopped talking right there. But she doesn't. And she says this, For my son to make an, a carved image and a cast idol. I'll give it back to you. You know, there, there, son. You stole $2.2 million from me. And uh, I, I cursed you, but now I bless you. And not only do I bless you, I'm giving it all back to you to do whatever you want. Here's, here's what she's saying to him. Here's what I'm going to do, son. I'm going to buy you a brand new Camaro. And the reason I'm going to buy you a brand new Camaro is because in my heart of hearts, I know that you're going to take the young people to church in your new Camaro. So I'm actually convincing myself that I can use the money that I claim belongs to the Lord to buy something that I'm going to salve my conscience by claiming it's somehow consecrated to the Lord and that it's somehow going to be used for the purposes of God when in fact I know that the very thing that I'm purchasing is going to make me more and more unavailable to God. That's what's happening here. It's the idol of what I'm calling possessives. Now you said, Rick, it should be possessions, shouldn't it? Well, no, it could be. But there's not a problem with possessions. Everybody in this room has them. You're all wearing possessions this morning. You will probably go home to one. You will get in your chariot and go home. You have a possession. There's nothing wrong with possessions. There's something wrong with having your possessions possess you. And the point of an image or the point of an idol, the point of a carved image, is that I'm making a statement that I'm not satisfied with the invisible God. I feel it necessary to make a God or gods that are more compatible with how I would like God to be. I would like God to be more like a brand new Camaro. I would like God to be more like a gigantic mansion. I, I, would, I would like God to be more the kind of God who would give me more things. So we make God in our preferred image. That's why we have a commandment problem on our hands here, don't we? Have we now not moved to the third commandment problem? What's the commandment? What commandment is it? Number I understand why you would say number one, but it's number two. Number two commandment says, you shall not make any images, any graven images or likenesses to God, because you can't 
You can't make something with your hands that is the image of God. And it's simply, the simple reason is this. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Why did God hand down this commandment so many thousands of years ago? Because he was going to produce an image in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God. Everything else falls miles and miles short of the image of God. And so this young, this Micah man is convinced himself that his idols are really in God's service. And, and here's, the, here's what the real clinker is. She says, I'm giving my silver to the Lord. And she only peels off 200 shekels and keeps, by my math, 900 for herself. And then you hold back on most of what you say is his. And you know why you do this? Because when you stop listening to God, which this family had, you start buying gods who will listen to you. Because if you see what's happening here, if you remember at the early part of our teaching in the book of Judges, God said you need to chase all the people, the pagans, out of your land because they have idols. And those idols will steal your heart. And here's the progression that is quite alarming that has happened here. Commandment number one says, Thou shalt have or you shall have no other gods before me. That was what God warned them about. And then the second is a follow-up. If you allow other gods, the gods of lost people, to be before me, it won't be long before you're making your own gods just like they did. So I think it's safe to say that Israel had long ago broken this commandment. And that's why we are where we are. The first command. Look at that baby standing up. The first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's what's happened here. There's this progression that has taken place. And these gods that you start buying who will listen to you start using up all your cash. And the simple truth is you can only be as faithful to God as the time and resources devoted to other gods permit. He was using, Micah was using what he said belonged to God, what his mother said belonged to God, and making gods that would fit his way, his wishes, his dreams, his wants better. There's a story uh, that says, uh, there's a little funny story that's about a kid who his mother gave him two toonies. One toonie was to spend on himself a treat at the store. Can't get much for a toonie. The other toonie was to take to Sunday school and give to, give to the Lord. And so as he was on his way to the store, he, he took his two toonies out of his pocket to look at them, and one of them fell out of his hand, and it rolled down a sewer grate. And he looked up to heaven and said, God, there goes your toonie. <laughs> That's the danger 
that we face in our own lives with our possessions, our things, which Micah wrestled with. Here's the problem. Here's the problem with the reason that some of us can't give as generously of our time or our talents or our treasure to the Lord as even we want to in our lives. It's because for, I, I suspect, all of our lives, we've been living in this opulent Western culture. And it is. If any of you have traveled the world, you know how wealthy we are. You know how much of the world's goods that we have. And we have staged our lives according to the standard of living of people of the culture who don't love God like we love him. And, and so they have surrounded themselves with a standard of living that doesn't include God. And we have looked at what they have and their standard of living and we have tried to copy it. And in our copying of their standard of living, we didn't realize that they left no room for God. And in, in our inadvertently, by copying the culture which God has always warned us about, we've embraced their gods, embraced their values, embraced their standard of living, which didn't include God. And now we're trying to include God on top of that. And we only have leftovers, if that, for God. The culture is not our model. We find out that this son, Micah, is really a man. We're shocked about that when we get down to, um, when we get to uh, verse 13. Actually, verse 5, it says, now this man, Micah, so we find out he's a man. He has his own sons, even. He's got children. And uh, remembering I said, remember I said to you, uh, don't forget about the comment I made about him managing his life with money. I want to show you now that now he's going to try to manage God, uh, man, not just manage his life with his money, but he's going to try to manage God with his money. Look at verse 13. Because... Uh, Micah, it says, uh, says here, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. Now, um, this is a very, very uh, subtle but incredibly dangerous, eternally dangerous issue and problem. Uh, Micah... We, we learned early, earlier that he had created his own worship system. He had created his own shrine, his own ephod. He had his own household idols. He was now making some idols on the basis of his mother's investment. He, was, uh, um, uh, he, he, he employed his own sons as his uh, priest. And, and by the way, the place of worship declared by God was Shiloh. And then, and then um, he finds that there's this wandering Levite who it says came from Bethlehem, uh, Judah, which is a problem because we already know, or we know, if, if we read uh, uh, the expectations of the Levitical priesthood, they were, there were certain Levitical cities. Bethlehem wasn't one of them. So this is an unemployed Levite who is actually out of the will of God. He's not even living in the right place where God wants him to live. 
He's wandering around. Micah has no spiritual sensitivity and decides, hey, if my sons were pretty good priests, imagine how good a Levite will be. I'm going to buy myself a priest. So he buys himself a priest. And here's the problem. He says, now I know God will be good to me. Now, you, hear, you got any problem with that? Do you see any problem with that? you sense any problem with that? I sense a lot of problems with that. Not the least of which is, to say that is presupposing that there must have been times where he thinks God is not good to me. Where he thinks God is not good. He says, now I know God has to be good to me because I bought myself a priest. I got myself a church. I got my own thing going. God's going to have to be good to me. You see, here's the problem with all of that, is, is, uh, is Micah is, uh, for some reason, uh, giving the impression that God is only good when he does good things to you, when he does good things for you. He's giving the impression as well, in particular, and this is the eternal danger issue, he's giving the impression that you can bribe God with your good works. And I, I think that there's perhaps no more critical point than this one. That's why I'm going to camp here for a few minutes and, and we'll, we'll conclude with this. This is a critical issue. And I, I feel very burdened about this issue because having preached in churches for 25 years, I fear that people who have heard me preach will end up face-to-face with God someday and think that they can bribe their way into heaven because of their good works. And there's a subtle danger to this, beloved. Micah was convinced that God would have to be good to him now because he had got himself some religion, that he had bought himself a priest, that he was in fact employing a priest. Oh, God surely has to be good to me. Look how much I'm giving the man. I'm giving him 10 shekels a year out of the $2.2 million estate. Surely God's has to be good to me. Here's the problem. We can, we can believe in our hearts that, Lord, I pray to you today. You, you owe me a good day. You owe me no jams. There should be no problems in my life. I, sh- I should be fine. I have my devotions this morning, Lord. I'm going to go through the day, and, 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 and you owe me now, God, because I had my devotions. Lord, I, I, got, a, I got a mission trip planned. You know that. I'm going to go, and I'm going to sacrifice my time for some people down there who got some real problems and poor things, poor people, and I'm going to take care of that. And Lord God, you, you know that I, I read the word of God today, and and, and so you owe me. And here's the problem. Micah thought everything was about goods and services. That somehow, if I do this, God owes me that. And here's the problem. When something goes wrong in that system, you turn your back on God and believe that God's not good. And he's turned his back on me and he doesn't love me. The danger of this is believing that somehow... Our good behavior can bypass the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf and gain us salvation with God. The danger of this is in this incredible idea 
that God is now beholding to me, that he now has to pamper me, that he now has to get me out of every jam. And in effect, what we are saying by this methodology is, I now own God. That's the issue here. In contract faith, I now own God. Every day I get up, I do my devotions, I pray, I ask him, I now own God. He owes me certain good, behave, certain good things. But true faith is where we turn to God with nothing, deserving nothing, having been rebellious against God and realizing that he has given us an amazing gift of his grace in Jesus Christ. And I turn to him and say, God, you own me. God is not a servant who we can buy by our good behavior or by our works, the idol of our works. God is the living God of the universe who by grace not of any good works lest we should boast. For all of our good works are as filthy rags before God. I bring my life to him with empty hands and say, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner deserving to die. That's the serious problem with allowing idolatry to weasel its way into our life. And when we stop listening to God, and by the way, uh, we, don't, we didn't have time, but there are three more in chapter 18. There are three more commandments. The Danites, they go and they, they covet a people. They covet the things that they have. They murder them. And then they buy this Levite to honor their way by using the Lord's name. Knowing full well that everything they were doing was in opposition to the words of God. And here a Levite, knowing that he is out of the will of God, they are out of the will of God, tells them that God is well pleased with what they are doing, is using the Lord's name in vain. So in this case, we have three more commandments. Butchered. Commandment 6, Commandment 10, and Commandment 3. How many does that add up to, people? Out of 10, seven commandments. Listen, this is the takeaway. When you stop listening to God, you will start making gods who will listen to you. And soon, you are listening to them. Our Father, I pray this morning as we have peered into a personal life that was a wreck. It's just a mess. And then we see at the very end, his own gods are stolen. He can't, he can't even take care of his gods. And he says, I have nothing left. Everything's gone. Oh God, you have said to us, Invest your treasures in heaven where moth and rust and mildew and thieves 
cannot take away. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to again see this text as a mirror of our lives. Is there anything in our life that matches the carnage that we see in this text? And oh God, would you deliver us from this by the power of your Holy Spirit? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.